Hello, and welcome to Dressing Room Talk. Today's episode is called Dancing to Her Own Beat with Lindsay Hansen. Michaela, would you like to introduce our guest? I would love to. So Lindsay Hansen is here today. She is a New York City-based dancer and actress. She has an MFA in dance from Montclair State University and a BA in dance from Hope College. She is currently a professor of dance at Hope College as well. Prior to coming on as a faculty member at Hope, Lindsay was a frequent guest teacher for Hope College offering masterclasses in jazz, contemporary, ballet, and audition technique. She was an adjunct professor at Montclair State University for two years teaching dance appreciation and a guest jazz teacher at the Joffrey Ballet School in New York City. Wow. (laughs) And there's more. (laughs) While working in New York City, Lindsay was and still is a performer with Third Rail Projects in their award-winning immersive show, Then She Fell. She most recently appeared on Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, oh my god, as a Copacabana dancer. Other TV commercial credits include Difficult People, Panera, Sesame Street, America's Got Talent, and Samsung. Lindsay also has had an extensive career in the theater, making her Broadway debut in The Illusionists. She also has performed off-Broadway in several regional theaters and festivals. Lindsay was a featured dancer for four years on several cruise lines, as a dancer and as an aerialist in a synchronized trapeze and skills act. Unreal. (laughs) Lindsay was recently awarded the Kelvin Vital Worship Teacher Scholars Grant to fund a site-specific dance performance in New York City this summer titled Sanctuary. And this will be her directorial debut. Wow, you guys. We are truly honored to have Lindsay today speaking with us about theater, film, choreography, teaching, life, work-life balance. Lindsay, please say hello to our listeners. Hello, everybody. (laughs) We are both so, 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 so excited to be speaking with you today. So just like a little bit of a background story with how I sort of know Lindsay. Lindsay and I went to the same high school, Fredonia High School in Fredonia, New York, upstate New York, shout out. Lindsay and Mm -hmm. I did not go to school together, but I did see her in many shows at Fredonia when I was a little girl and was obsessed with her and still is in the best way. So (laughs) it's been wonderful to see her (laughs) grow as an artist and person Ever since those high school days, she's just blossomed into quite the woman. And I'm excited that you guys get to hear her talk all about the things today. So let's jump right in. Thank you so much for that. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I'm like, who is that girl? (laughs) Um, No, but thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, You guys make me sound (laughs) a lot, a lot more impressive than I think. So that's that's really great. And um, you guys are just awesome for asking. So thank you. I'm super humbled and excited to be here. Lindsay, please just walk us through how you you got where you are. Give me give, give us some it tips. All. <laughs> give some tips. Oh goodness. <laughs> yeah, where did the where did the bug start? Yeah, I think, you know, like like every child, you know, you experiment with different recreational activities. And so, of course, I was enrolled in dance class when I was three. Um, And, you know, my mom, she made me stop dancing for a year just to see if I really liked it. And of course, I was obsessed by that point. And granted, I was in first grade. So (laughs) Um, and I, I, you know, that one year of not doing any kind of dance classes, I made my own dance education. I was performing in my living room around my neighborhood. So I just, I loved to dance and to perform so much. So she knew to keep me 
in class. So yeah, I took dance um, at a local studio in Fredonia at the Collage. And um, I think honestly, I was pretty competitive. But you know, my dad, he was a former uh, professional athlete. And so that kind of competitiveness really was instilled in me, I think, in an extra amount uh, from him. Because my mom's advice was always, you know, do your best. And my dad's advice was, you have to be the best. And it may sound kind of intense, and maybe it was, but to be honest, it never was trying to be better than, you know, my friends or be better than that particular person right there. It was always just trying to be better than this invisible competition. I just wanted to always be the best that I could be. And there was a little bit more of this drive that I, you know, I would work out at home. I would run to dance class instead of being driven to dance class by my mom. (laughs) And so I just kind of was a little obsessed with being just training the body um, because I knew that my body was my ticket into the dance world. And so I knew that I had to be super strong. And so I also did uh, sports in school. I was a three-sport athlete. You know, I never really (laughs) enjoyed sports that much, but I (laughs) loved the competitive nature of it. And I loved just like the physical aspect of it. So I ran cross country. I ran track. I played soccer a lot, even though I have a terrible shot. Um, I never made a goal, <laughs> but I always outran everybody. But then I missed the goal oh, no. every time. So I was like, stop passing it to me. I'm not going to make it. But yeah, so and I started auditioning for professional jobs when I was 15, 16 years old. And, um, you know, even though the audition breakdown said explicitly they don't hire dancers younger than the age of 18, I still went. And I think it was really good for me to get used to putting myself out there and to just grow that thick skin at an early age. So yeah, that was kind of the lead up to performing in the musicals at Fredonia. And that to me was a big turning point just because, I mean, of course I was training and dance this whole time. You know, that was a huge part of my training was just taking all these lessons and performing in the recitals and this and that. But when I, um, I remember... I was in the show Crazy For You, and usually as a dancer, you're part of the chorus, and so, you know, you learn the numbers and you do all the the acting that is the crowd acting, but I had a role where, you know, I had comedic lines, I had a character arc, like there were all these cool parts of my role that it was a bigger task for me to deliver on stage, and so it was really awesome because I finally felt like the performing bug, it really clicked because um, that was the first year that Fredonia High School did two weekends of shows because usually you just do one big weekend of the shows and then it's done. But they were like, you know what? We, we sold a lot of tickets last year. Let's do an additional weekend for this year's show. And so they had another weekend. And that last weekend, I remember the lines were finally landing. Like you got the timing mm-hmm. right for all the jokes and, you know, the audience was starting to get it. And, you know, there was just, it all just kind of clicked into place, the rhythm of the performance. And I remember thinking when the last weekend was done, I thought, well, no, I'm just getting started. This is uh, the beginning and it was over. And so that to me was the moment that I realized, oh, this definitely has to be my career because I want more of this. This was way too fun to stop. 
I knew right then that that was definitely the right career move for me. I didn't know that that was the first week or the first year that they did two weekends of shows at Fredonia High School. That's so cool. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, I'm yeah. 99% sure. So we'll have to ask Ben Wendell. Yeah, <laughs> Ben know. Wendell, where are you at? <laughs> yeah, and like what a what an insane passion for something at such a young age. Like a lot, I don't feel like a lot of people don't discover stuff like that until later. Yeah, I remember not being able to quite understand when other dancers my age, they liked dancing and it, they did it for fun. And I'm like, what do you mean for fun? Like, <laughs> aren't you wanting to be the best? Or aren't you wanting to do this professionally? Yeah. And I'm like 12 years old, you know? Aww. And so I, uh, yeah, I don't think it was a level of seriousness that other people maybe could relate to, or, you know, it was, I didn't really see eye to eye with other people my age that didn't take it that seriously. Um, which is so silly. <laughs> yeah, but like that's also very rare for somebody so young to be like so clear about what they want for their future, like in a career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so career standpoint. That's mm-hmm. that's pretty awesome that you have yeah. that. Yeah, that determination so young that people crave mm-hmm. as well, and it, it takes people a while to get there. So that's that's definitely a special part of you. Thank you. So tell us about finding an undergraduate program? It was so serendipitous because uh, a dancer that was a couple years older than me, her name is Sarah Loomis, she went to Hope College and her dad, Mike Loomis, he has such a boisterous personality. (laughs) So he saw me one day and said, hey, I have to talk to you about Hope. (laughs) I said, okay. So he came over and talked to my parents and I about Hope College. And he was so passionate about the school and believed in the program and everything that the school stood for that he said, hey, I'm going to go up to Hope College anyway and watch a soccer game. Why don't you come with me and you can check out the school with my daughter while I watch their soccer game that weekend. And his son was playing soccer. So anyway, um, I came and visited and I just realized it was such a special place. People were so kind and I really felt like that was the school for me. Um, So that's how I found hope. And it was a really important step for me because even though I really wanted just to go right to New York and start performing, you know, I kind of was a a one-dimensional dancer. Not that I had, you know, inadequate training up to that point. I I didn't. I had great training. But there was a couple – a couple styles that I didn't really have a lot of experience in yet. And so it was really important for me to become even more of a well-rounded dancer. So when I was at Hope, I learned a lot about modern and contemporary dance. And I think it just really made me a little bit more of a a more diversified, I guess, dancer and technique. And um, it really, I think, shaped me and allowed me to perform in more serious roles And it kind of gave me a deeper appreciation for all sorts of dance and not just the flashy entertainment style of dance. And then the really great thing about Hope was that they have a New York City semester, kind of like a study abroad, but you're not going overseas. (laughs) Um, So I spent my last semester at Hope in New York interning at Broadway Dance Center. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also was rehearsing with a professional contemporary company out there. And so I was able to be in this company and and get the professional dancer life and then also do this internship, gain class experience that way. And so that was kind of my transition into just moving to New York full time. So 
that made the move very easy to to navigate and to you know say okay I'm going to move to the city you know it was I already lived there so it was it was easy for me to to make that move that's so wonderful very cool was there any like moment or thing that like truly surprised you while you were at college like you just were like oh I actually really like this or like oh maybe I don't like this as much as I thought I did um you actually brought up a really funny point so you know going into college I knew I want to be a dancer and I all of a sudden just realized, ah, like I'm a type A person. I want a stable life. And I don't know if I really want to do the whole professional dancer or starving artist thing. And I actually changed my major like three times while at Hope. Oh my goodness. I was a dance major when I first came in. And then because I got scared, I changed my major over to phys ed. I was like, well, I like to be active and education is a really, you know, stable job and stable career. And so I changed my major to phys ed. Mm. And so then I was a phys ed major and miserable. I hated all my education classes. And (laughs) so then I changed back to a dance major and a communications minor. But because I had missed some time being a phys ed major, I wasn't able to finish my communications minor in time. And I'm like, yeah, that's like, I'm just going to drop the minor. I'm just going to be a dance major and that's it. (laughs) That is one of the most like authentic truths of knowing that you're meant to be a performer is Absolutely. I mean, my college <laughs> the head of my department would tell like anytime anybody came to audition to the parents and to the kids that were coming to audition, he would go, "If you want to do anything else, go do it." <laughs> because the only way you're making it in this business is if this is the only business you can think of. It's all you can think about when you wake up in the morning. Everything else makes you miserable. Mm-hmm. So that just like proves his point. Truly. So. Yeah. And I think my professors knew that I needed a little bit of a push into being brave enough to pursue the career because I had to declare my dance major and I was going back and forth and I wasn't sure if I should stay in education or not. And my one of my professors, she stopped me in the hallway and she said, if you're looking for that kind of assurance and control of your you know resources in life and have that stable lifestyle, you're not going to find it in a dance career. You're just simply not going to, but that's okay. And I guess her just kind of normalizing the instability was a light bulb moment for me because up until that point, I viewed instability as, well, I can't do this if it's not stable. Mm. But then for her to say, it's never going to be stable, but that's okay because you're performing and you're living your life as an artist and that is enough. That to me was a, a huge turning point where I thought, okay, I can do this. I may not know what the next few steps are gonna be, but that's okay. Um, And that gave me the bravery to just go full throttle. Great advice, especially for all of us artists right now, right there. Take that and write it in your journal, people. (laughs) It's true. It's the instability is okay. And and it's all enough. That is I'm definitely writing that in my journal tonight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So talking about New York City and how you had that wonderful study abroad experience at Hope College. Talk to us about the rest of the experience once you actually decided right after, okay, hey, I'm going to live here and I'm going to do the audition life and give us a little window into how all of that went and how many years you spent there. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I moved to New York. Well, I had my study abroad um, semester from January 2009 until graduation and then uh, moved back home to kind of get my stuff all packed up and made the big move out there in August of 2009. And I moved out of the city to Michigan um, in 2020. So I'd been in the city for 11 years. Um, So cool. (laughs) And so during that time when I first moved to the city, got a job at a restaurant. And if I could just kind of interject with one thing really quickly is that I don't really recommend getting a restaurant job. If somebody is moving to New York and they're wanting to be an auditioning artist, I would say, Probably not the best job would be a restaurant job just because the hours are terrible. You're so exhausted and it's really easy to get stuck in that restaurant life and then just never be able to audition because you're so exhausted. So just my little two cents there from what I experienced. Great advice. (laughs) So yeah, I worked in a restaurant. It was so much fun. It was exhilarating. But again, I didn't audition as much as I wanted to. But I was auditioning for kind of everything and anything. I had moved to New York thinking that I was a jack of all trades. I wouldn't say master of none, but maybe just let's keep it as I could do a lot of different things. And I thought of myself as a chameleon because I was auditioning for modern and contemporary companies. I was auditioning for cruise lines. I was auditioning for regional theater. So I kind of just threw myself at anything. And so I finally was offered my first professional job as a swing for a contemporary company. And I thought, wow, finally, the same day I was offered a contract for Celebrity Cruise Lines. (laughs) So I'd been, you know, hustling for so long trying to get any kind of job and then finally get two in one day and have to pick one. So I guess that's kind of how it works out. When it yep. rains, it pours. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I chose the the cruise line just because of the money was obviously way better than um, the modern company. But the director totally understood. She was like, you know, I can't pay you what the cruise line is going to pay you. And I, I say, go travel the world, go perform, you know, do your thing. Um, so that was really awesome of her. So, yeah, I worked for Celebrity Cruise Lines for three years doing – just a bunch of different contracts. And at that point, they trained me to be an aerial artist. So I did silks and trapeze and lira and, you know, danced a ton. So sick. living on a cruise <laughs> ship, though, long term is weird. Um, I'm just going to say, I mean, you're living in someone else's vacation and the vacation just keeps restarting every week or every two weeks. So it's a little bit like Groundhog Day and a little like you're living in someone else's mm. fantasy. And it just kind of gets strange after a while. You're like, this isn't real life. I I cannot get used to going to a beach every day and then going to do a show at night and then having like a day or two off in between each show. Like it just felt, I don't know, it just didn't feel like real life to me. I'm like, I need a little more of a struggle. So after three years of, of that, moved back to New York and just hustled. You know, I went to a ton of auditions, did a couple, you know, I did like a national tour for a Christmas show and a bunch of random stuff. Basically, I knew I wanted to work more in TV and film because I hadn't really tapped that market yet. I was like, okay, I've done the cruise ship stuff. I've done, at that point I did, you know, a Christmas show and then I did other like regional theater stuff. And so I'm like, you know what? I want to do TV film. So I started taking classes in acting for the camera 
and improv to try to just get better at auditioning for commercials and stuff. And so threw myself at everything and anything and basically just tried to book as much stuff as possible and show off to agencies to be like, hey, you should you should sign me because I'm booking. Yeah, you definitely <laughs> so were successful, yes. It was a lot of networking. The amount of no's that I got, it's it's a lot, <laughs> you know, and you have to learn from each audition. There's this balance, I think, where you, you know, each audition, you can't really take it too personally, but you also need to be aware enough at the audition to learn what worked and what didn't work and just be okay with kind of throwing it away when you walk out the door. You're like, okay, that happened. But then to kind of take away some kind of lesson so that you know for next time, like, oh, I'm going to make sure I do this differently or I don't know. Maybe sometimes there isn't a lesson. Maybe you just weren't what they were looking for and not take it super personally, you know? Exactly. You also signed with the TV film agency, correct? Like once some... Yeah. You booked work and then you booked an agency. Or was it the other way around? Yeah. So I think that's a big misconception is that I think people move to New York and or LA and they're like, okay, I have to get an agent. And, you know, to be completely honest, um, an agent wants to work with somebody that already has been working. And so... You know, if you're this fresh talent and you don't have a lot of credits yet, an agent isn't going to get you work. They want to work with you and enhance your career or propel your career that's already taken off. So a good way to know if you're ready for an agent, because to be completely honest, I was still booking things without my agent's help, and I still had to give them that 10% Mm -hmm. of my paycheck. So I would say there's good and bad with having an agent just like there's good and bad of joining equity or, you know, the non-union versus union life. It's like, well, maybe there are more opportunities if you're non-union, but, you know, the pay may not be as good every time. So there's there's good and bad. So with an agent, um, a good way to know if you're ready for an agent is if you are consistently booking work and there are jobs that you know you're good enough to get, but you can't get in the room because they're invite-only auditions. So that to me is the benchmark of, okay, okay, am I booking work consistently? And is there an audition for a replacement role? And I'm not going to get in the room because they're not having an open call. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when you know it's time for an agent because you do get all of those invite-only auditions um, with an agent. So I had an agent for two years and it was was good. Um, It was also really stressful because – you know, you have to have your side job. And sometimes I would get an email at 10 a.m. being like, hey, we have an audition for you. It's today at 1 p.m. And you're just like, oh, I'm going to get fired today. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Great. There goes that job. I have an audition, you know. So it's stressful knowing that your schedule is not in your control at all. But it's also really great because you get to, you know, be in the room for all these auditions that other people aren't getting into. So that's also really exciting. For sure. So when you started to book TV, film, and commercial gigs, was there a part of you that missed the theater? Or were you excited about, like, the new medium and the fact that it was working? Like, your auditions were working and you were marketable. Like, was there a moment where you looked back and you were like, oh, maybe, maybe I like this more, (laughs) you know? Yeah, it was really fun because I'm like, oh, I'm actually kind of good at this. Um, And (laughs) yeah, but I will say that I, 
I knew that it it took work. I had to take class in, you know, how do you slate your name? How do you, mm-hmm. if someone said, oh, let me see your hands. It's like, there's a way to show your hands for a commercial audition. Like you'd think you just kind of hold your hands up, but there's actually like, there's a technique to slating your name. There's um, a technique to what the protocol is. Just like, you know, you, there's a certain protocol when you walk in to sing your 16 bars, there's a protocol with a commercial audition. And when I was doing TV, film, and commercials, I also, I still did have a, a foot in the theater door. I was, my agent actually was, um, I had three different agents with this agency. Oh, so wow. I had an agent in the TV and film uh, department, and then I had a different agent in the theater department. So I, I was kind of double dipping within this agency. Um, so I was getting sent out for all all these musical theater roles. And to be honest, I'm not a true triple threat. I can hold a tune, but, you know, musical theater these days, it was different than when I was in college training. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was in college, and this actually makes perfect sense. So when I was in college, it was 2005 to 2009. And at that point, the cast size for musicals, they were larger in the fact that there were the principal roles, there were the singers, and then there were the dancers. And then in 2008, the recession hit. And Broadway cast sizes got a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. And so you had your ensemble, which were dancer-singers or singer-dancers, and they understudied the principal roles. Mm. And so it wasn't enough for you to be a really awesome dancer and hold a tune. You had to cover the principal. So you had to be a really good dancer and be a knockout singer. And I just simply didn't have that kind of training And I wasn't obsessed with musical theater to the point of wanting to get that training, to hang in that crowd. I was enjoying the more commercial side of dance, you know, doing music videos and award shows and, you know, uh, cruise lines and, you know, fun, just dancer stuff. So I think now the musical theater performer has to be a true triple threat, Um, whereas before you kind of could, you could slide with one or two strengths. For sure. I actually just had a conversation with my mom before I got on this call with you about uh, Brian Yusufer, who is a Fredonia State alumni, Aww. who is a huge music director, conductor, all of the above. And he came on a Zoom call with SUNY Fredonia today, and he was talking about the importance of the triple threat in the business is totally a thing right now. Mm-hmm. And even once we get back at it after this pandemic, is that like, if you can't do a little bit of it all, you're like... It's sad. He's like, you know, it's sad to see those people who are just stunning singers, but they just have no dance technique. Like he's like, get in classes, you guys stay in classes. It's really good advice, you know, to always be working on every aspect. Yeah. And you don't have to be amazing at them all. Like, you know, I'm more of a singer actor and I'm taking dance classes. You don't need to be the best of the best, but you need to be consistently working on each skill because it does matter more mm-hmm. than you realize. Mm-hmm. And especially now. Yeah. And it's an oversaturated market. So there's always someone that's going to be better than you. For <laughs> sure. My, it's a really sad mentality, but that's my mentality. No, yeah. I'm like, there's always someone that is better than you. <laughs> Let's hope that they're not in the audition room. <laughs> right. But yeah, so I, was, I wasn't I was booking a lot of musical theater stuff, but I was booking TV and commercial stuff. And so I told my agency, like, hey, I really, I, I want to do more of this commercial side of things, TV, film stuff. I don't really want to do musical theater but they were like, oh, no, no, you're great for musical theater. You have this look and blah, blah, blah. So they kept putting me in musical theater auditions, and I kept 
getting cut, you know, because I would get to the last round. I'd make it to final callbacks pretty much consistently. But then I never booked it because it came down to, can you cover this principal role's track? And it's like, well, no, I can't, you know. So every agency has this kind of policy where if you don't book something significant in about four months, four to six months, they drop you simply because it's a business. You know, they're there to make money. You have them to make money. They have you to make money. And so if it's not working out, then they have to move on. Unfortunately, I did get dropped. But honestly, it was kind of a mutual thing. I mean, I wasn't going to drop them, let's be real. (laughs) But it was kind of a relief to be on my own again because then I can go to any audition I wanted. I already had those connections of how to get into the room. And I didn't have to be paranoid about trying to figure out how to navigate this audition and that last minute audition when I had something else planned that day. Yeah, it's and you have to check in with that person. I mean, they're I'm in an agent class right now actually and we're talking, you know, about the steps to getting one and mm. meetings and writing your emails and all that and I love what you said because it's true an actor for an agent is an investment, but an agent for an actor is a tool. And even though we're colleagues and we're on this equal level ground, they still get that 10 to 20% of your paycheck. And like you said, just because you have one doesn't mean all the work and the research goes away. Mm-hmm. And like you're doing just as much, if not more. And, you know, checking in and having to change your schedule at a moment's notice. And it's, yeah, it's a lot. And it's not your fault when you don't mm-hmm. book, you know, like it's it tough. places a little, it intensifies the stakes yeah. um, when you're at an audition because when you get cut at an audition, it's, you know, it's not fun. But when you have an agent that knows you got cut, it's like, double not oh, fun. shoot. <laughs> well, hey. yeah, double not fun. And so I think every artist goes through this. Maybe not every artist, but a lot of us, I think, go through this where I just, I was getting close to booking and then I didn't book. And that was going on for about, I'd say almost two years. I got like a small national tour within that time, but it wasn't something that I was like, yes, super like, you know, excited. It was a company I've worked for before. And so I was like, yeah, sure. I'll do the show again. You know, um, it, you know, it wasn't a huge, huge contract, but it was still nice to perform. And, but I definitely, I was, you know, without an agent, I wasn't booking anything substantial to warrant me hustling this hard. And so I did this one month Christmas tour and it was really fun to perform again. And I was with people that I liked. And so it was, it was nice to kind of see the country for a Mm -hmm. month. But I remember being really cognizant every curtain call and kind of scanning my emotions, you know, doing a little self-check of, okay, I'm bowing. The audience is on their feet. I'm getting a standing ovation. Is this feeding me? And the answer every night was, hmm, not really, you know, and I think that's an okay thing to start to notice in yourself. I've been doing this for, you know, 10 years and I was tired and it's not like I had a huge injury to end my career for me. It was just the applause wasn't really making the hustle worth it. And I think that was an important realization to make. And I was like, okay, what's the next step here? And I think a lot of people, and even now with the pandemic, holy cow, you know, people have to ask themselves that and to be okay to sit with a little uncertainty. So I knew that at that point I kind of had to make a decision. That was about 
2017, I want to say. And thankfully, I kind of had a feeling of what plan B was Mm -hmm. because when I was in college at Hope, I looked at my professors and I thought, wow, they really got it good because here they are dancing and choreographing and directing and taking their work abroad and teaching and just like being so creative. But then they also have a salary. They have health insurance. Mm -hmm. Like they have a house. Mm -hmm. They can have a family. And I thought, wow, they really have the best of both worlds. So I knew that I needed to pursue my performance career first because that that takes a young body, you know. And then once I felt like I kind of ran out of fuel for that, um, I knew the next step was then to pursue a career as a dance professor. And so thankfully I had that in my back pocket, kind of just waiting for the right time to dig into that. So is that what prompted going to grad school then? Absolutely. Yeah, I knew that. To be a dance professor, you need three things. You need experience teaching at a college, which is kind of a catch-22. And then you need a master's degree. And then you also need a lot of professional experience. And so I I had the professional experience. And I had guest taught at Hope. Just, you know, if I was on a national tour and I was in town or, you know, near the West Michigan area, I would say, like, hey, I'm, I'm in the area can I come in and guest teach a class? And they'd be like, yes, we'd love to have former students who are now working, come teach kind of thing. So I had college experience teaching, and then I also had the professional experience, but then I didn't have a master's. So I was like, okay, well, that's the last thing I have to get. Might as well get it. So I went to, um, I applied to grad school, and that was super hard, but, you know, got through it with a lot of help from family and friends. And, um, I chose a program that was a low residency program. So it was an online program the whole year. And then for a month in June, we all gathered together to take class on campus. And that was like an intense one month semester. So that was that was pretty intense, but it was two years. Boom, got it done, got my MFA. And then during my last semester of my grad program, I started to apply to professorships. And I applied to seven different schools and it nearly killed me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, and interviewed at Hope and got the yeah, job. Yeah, <laughs> rightfully so. Deserving, very deserving. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. What was the moment when you found out? Were you just elated? Yes, because <laughs> it was so much work. I didn't know how to apply to a professorship. Mm. You know, there's there's so many things about a career in academia that is not really talked about. And so I actually read a couple books on even just how to get a job in academia. And so I really poured myself into it. I think it kind of was, it was reminiscent of when I was younger, pouring myself into my dance training. You know, I poured myself into getting a job as a professor because that was my ticket to stability. And I'm like, I want this. I want this so badly. And of course I was just competitive in nature (laughs) anyway. So I thought, it's a numbers game. Somebody's got to get the job. Mm-hmm. So maybe that can be me. Um, and so I read a couple books on, you know, what it takes to be hired as a professor. I researched all these different programs and learned about what their program valued. And I would 
cater my cover letter and all you have to make all these statements, you know, write all these papers and stuff to submit. And so I would just research the school and then try to kind of I would basically research the school and say, okay, you know, I could teach this, but this school really values this. So I'll say that, you know, I could also teach this, you know. So yeah, I kind of just tried to sell me as a professor and um, it went really well. I got a couple different schools to reach out and ask for kind of pre-interview meetings. And then I got the farthest with hope. And that was, man, that was hard because, you know, you have your you have your interview online or not online, but, you know, over Skype. And then if you get past that, then they fly you out to interview in person. And that was a really long weekend because it involved me teaching a few classes, interviewing with like five different people. I had to interview with the provost, the the president, the dean, you know, I had an interview with students. I had all these different interviews over the course of two days, and it was just a marathon. But I prepared well. <laughs> you know, I was doing mock interviews with my husband. I was reading on the plane on the way there, you know, okay, how to how to nail your interview with the president of the college, how to nail this, how to, you know. So I just really tried to prepare as much as I could. And, you know, when I when I finished the weekend, I really thought that was the best it could have gone. And I, you know, I haven't done this before. I don't think there was a moment where I thought, "Ugh, I could have done that better." I, I did the best that I could do, and I was really happy with my performance. Um, so that felt good. And it was easy to wait for, you know, the phone call saying I got it because I thought, you know, what if I didn't get it, then someone else must have been really deserving because like I. You've done everything I you could. I did a really yeah. solid job of preparing. Yeah, you left it all on the court. <laughs> I did. And that's kind of my style anyway. I kind of just, <laughs> I'm intense, I guess. <laughs> good. But yeah. And they called me and it was just such a wonderful feeling to know that, wow, this is a new life and it's going to be a lot of new things, but I'm ready for it. You know, I'm ready for just a house and to, you know, try to have a kid, you know, all those amazing things that are possible in New York, but a little bit more difficult. <laughs> Be right back with more after this. So can you give us some advice for our younger listeners um, and just any artist um, looking to have a career and especially going through this pandemic, any advice that you have for anybody? I think with the pandemic, um, a lot of performers and a lot of just there's a lot of uncertainty with what should I do now if I don't have my outlet as a performer. And I think it's important to not put your full identity in being a performer. I realize that you have to be singularly obsessed with your craft, but it also there has to be that balance where it can't be your entire identity because then what happens if you don't book the job. You know, that not only is crushing career-wise, but then it's crushing identity-wise, you know. And to put your identity in someone else's hands is is a dangerous thing to do. And we all do it because we all think it's, you know, it's fun to identify yourself as a performer, but then there is that risk of when you can't do the thing you identify as, then who are you? So, I think that happened to a lot of people during this pandemic of, oh, well, I'm, am I still a performer? 
Am I still a dancer? Am I still a singer? You know, because I haven't done it in a year. So what does that make me? And so I think it's important just to find something else that you identify with or just to identify with you as a person, you know, just to be like, I'm Lindsay and I happen to perform. And even now that I am a professor full time, I've made a point to not say that I'm a former professional dancer or a former performer <laughs> because I, I can come back to it. And I'm, maybe I'm not performing full time right now because I'm doing something different, but it doesn't mean I can't do it again in a different capacity, in the same capacity, you know, who knows? So yeah, I think that's something that is really important to kind of give yourself that longevity in just like your mental and emotional state. Yeah, way to throw in that work-life balance that our whole podcast is about. <laughs> it's true. We, we've talked a lot about it a lot where, uh, you know, we're humans. We're humans first and we can have other hobbies. Our first episode was yeah. about flexing your creative mind and just being creative for the fun of it and trying new things and, you know, having those outlets because it's, like you said, the, the job can carry you away a bit from who you are and can identify you and try to try to identify you and pigeonhole you. And we're, we're just as complex beings as all other people are in this world that have careers too. And even if you're not in the theater, please take this advice as well. <laughs> like don't let your career identify you mm -hmm. too and have those other outlets and hobbies and passions. And if you want to go with that passion, go for it. Like, you know, like Lindsay said, there's nothing wrong with changing your mind and there's nothing wrong with um, taking a step back and saying, hey, you know, this isn't feeding me the way it used to. And there's nothing wrong with that. You take that information, mm -hmm. put it in your brain and move forward and decide, okay, what's next? Yeah. And because of grad school, I was forced to create and direct my own projects and collaborations. And that was a role that I never got to put on. I was always the dancer or the actress. And so then to be on the other side and to make creative decisions I thought, wow, I never got a chance to do this, and this is really fun. And I don't think I would be as – well, the directing and the choreographing – choreographing was that's still pretty challenging for me. But directing, there's something that naturally clicks. And I think it's because in my performance career, I tried to not just put the identity of performer on myself. So having other interests, just making yourself a more complex person, I think – benefits you creatively. It, you know, you draw from more life experience. Um, if you were to just stay in one part of the industry and only do the same thing and be singularly obsessed with one thing, you kind of become a little stale, I think. And so to build that complexity with different sides of you, different interests, different experiences, try something that you're not good at be bad at something for once, you know, and um, it builds you as a person and makes you, I think, a little bit more of an interesting person yeah, to be around. It, honestly, from the experience that I've kind of been going through so far, it's it's making me more marketable and it's making me be more remembered and like it's making me me in the room. Like I'm not just showing up as a starving artist desperate as heck in that room. I'm showing mm -hmm. up as Michaela, who is complex and is you know, and Grace is showing up in her costume and she's going to show up in her costume interviews as someone who's a podcaster who also enjoys reading and has other passions and that versatility they can see and they can read off you. You know, they say, even Brian Yusufer said, like, they can tell, or Jason Robert Brown, too, who also recently visited SUNY Fredonia through Zoom, told the students, you know, we know within the first two seconds you walk in 
how your audition is going to go and like how you are and your confidence level and who you are and you want all the things and you want to be like be bad at something like Lindsay said and write it on your resume it's you know <gasps> it's important to yeah to be diverse and versatile and and also like say I want to learn how to do this and not just and say it. it but like actually figure out how to do it yeah I I think it is fun, though, to learn new things and to be bad at something. And something that really clicked when I was taking acting for the camera classes, slating your name can be the hmm. most daunting thing ever. And there's so much that is within that sentence of, hi, I'm Lindsay, and I'm auditioning for the role of blah, 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 or I'm reading for the role of blah, blah, blah. And um, the, the subtext of when you slate, according to this director who was working with me, he said, you know, we just want to find somebody that we want to have coffee with. Mm. So when you say your name, just relax. Yeah, relax. <laughs> just, you know, hey, I'm Lindsay and I'm auditioning for the role of this. And, you know, I want to help you today because they're nervous too. You know, the people behind the table, they have a job. They are, you know, they have people that are above them saying, you need to cast this show. And they got to get it right. And so they are, they're also nervous because they really want to find the perfect person. And so they have a job to do too. So when we level the playing field a little bit and realize that we both are serving each other, it's like, okay, we can relax and I'll give you my best, you know, and hopefully that's what you're looking for. If not, that's okay. Um, I think that kind of takes the the heat down in the room. You know, it can get a little oh, yeah. hot in there. And, and so... <laughs> They don't want you to be nervous because it makes them nervous, you know. So that helps me to enjoy auditions a little bit more when I humanize them and I become a little more authentic for myself. Yeah, no one has power over you. You you have the power of yourself and how you handle it and how you do. So focus on you and be kind. Always be kind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you want to be confident, but you don't want to be the person that is overly confident because then they don't want to have coffee with you. <laughs> it's it's that like it's that good level of confidence that's like, oh, we're going into weird territory, but I, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm up for the challenge. I'll do it. Yeah. I'll, I'll try yeah my best. Being up for the challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's let's transition to the pandemic and yeah. talk about. Um, so you got this job during the pandemic. Is yeah. That tell right? us about your life in the pandemic. Yeah, like, let's what's talk. up? <laughs> I was living in New York. And so. You know, there was this fear. We didn't know if you got COVID through touch or through breathing or, you know, there was there was so much unknown at that point. So we just were scared to leave our apartment. You know, there was just so much fear. And, you know, walking around outside, it just looked like such a ghost town. And everyone looked at you you know, with this fear and you looked at them with fear because you're like, I don't know, can I get it from you? Do you have it? You know, there was just so much uncertainty. And um, so we had to go house shopping online. We bought a house before we saw it in person. Um, the first time we walked through our home was at the final uh, inspection. And so, of course, we legally were still allowed to back out if there was like something massively wrong with the house, but there wasn't and we were fine. So, um, yeah, we bought a house <laughs> and um, packed up all of our things and we, my husband and I had just gotten married um, the previous summer. So we had all these wedding gifts and, you know, just we um, had a bunch of heirlooms from um, our families. His family had a lot of antique furniture from his grandmother. So they gifted us a lot of really beautiful pieces of furniture. 
So packed up all of our stuff and the moving company came and we packed up our couple outfits. We shared a carry-on suitcase and gathered up all of my house plants <laughs> and put them in his SUV. And we drove out to Michigan. And when we got to Michigan, the moving company called and said there has been a huge freak accident and all of your stuff oh has God. been destroyed. That's so sad. Hearing oh. it, I thought, this has to be a prank. This can't be real. We just gave you everything that we had. And to say that it's all destroyed, it was just, I, you can't wrap your head, you, there's no wrapping your head around it, you know? And um, the fact that like, I didn't see it all getting destroyed, it was just this invisible event that occurred in my head, I had to imagine it. It was a strange feeling and I still kind of, they're things, you know? It's not like, thankfully, you know, we're all safe and healthy, but it, it was weird to just be like, I don't have anything. Like, all of my clothes. Like, the clothes I packed, mind you, they were my worst, trashiest, Aww. like, garbage clothes. <laughs> I was planning on throwing them away by the end of the week because we knew we needed to, like, paint and do yard work and kind of get the house ready for our things to arrive. So it was, like, all my good stuff <laughs> <laughs> got completely just, I didn't bring anything. Had I known that that was going to happen, I, I wouldn't have brought my house plants. <laughs> <laughs> I would have brought, like, you know, my treasured things. Yeah. So it was crazy. But basically, like, the um, the moving company had a really bad flood in their warehouse because what they do is they take all your stuff, but then they wait to gather a couple other households worth of things so that they make them move with a couple different clients' stuff. And so within that, like, three-day window of when they had our stuff in storage, they had this awful rainstorm, and then there was a, a city pipe that that broke and burst in the facility. And so everything was covered in water. And um, because of all the red tape with insurance, they couldn't do any inspections for about two weeks. And by that point, everything had grown mold on it. Ugh. And the th and I was pregnant. So mold and being pregnant, it's just a very dangerous thing. And mold can be kind of insidious, invisible thing you don't want in your house. Absolutely. And so they were like, everything's moldy. We don't know if it's safe to even transport it to you. So they just kind of wrote us a check and said, we're really sorry. And I was just like, this doesn't even cover it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but what can you do? I mean, it's unfortunate. But And I also didn't want to be in court for a month when I was starting a new job and I needed to, you know, have my time to prepare. And it's crazy. It was a crazy way to start this new chapter with absolutely zero. Like I had a, it forced us to, to really rely on our neighbors that we didn't know at all. <laughs> and thank God that we had really kind neighbors because, you know, we would say, Hey, do you have a mug? <laughs> or, you know, we had to just borrow things for the first few days before, you know, before we went and bought a bunch of stuff. But yeah, it was crazy. Anyway, New beginnings, it forces you to realize your attachment to things, but it's mm. also like, well, those are memories. The amount of stuff that I were like, it's like, oh, that's my favorite table. Or like my husband, he got this beautiful solid oak dining room table <sighs> and he got it from Craigslist <laughs> for like 200 bucks, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but he and I cherished that table. Mm -hmm. We cherished it. And it was like, oh, well, I guess, you know, it's not something that we can have anymore and but you know you just have to learn to hold the funeral say your goodbyes and then you have to move on i love something you said though on our phone call about how young people try to avoid hardship please mention that 
having all of our things destroyed <laughs> in a flood, <laughs> obviously, you know, and also my career wasn't easy. I got plenty of rejections, so many rejections. And so I think that something that I see in the younger generation is they try to avoid hardship at all costs. And that's obviously not a bad thing, but I think, you know, we have to remember that hardship really redefines you. It forces you to redefine your values and to lean on other people. Like we can't be self-sufficient all the time. And I think when you have to rely on your community and your, your, your village, it really forces you to just try on some humility for size. And it's hard, but it does grow you as a person and it helps build up your resilience. And I think Resilience is a trait that people want to have, but you don't get it unless you've gone through something tough. That's something that I'm trying to express to my students, younger people that <laughs> want to listen to me. We do. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, you know, when it gets tough, you got to lean into it, you know, keep going. Yes. It's, didn't Winston Churchill have a really good quote about, you know, when you're going through hell, keep going? Keep going. Mm -hmm. I think that's something important. And not to shy away from hard Especially things. Especially when they come up in, not just only in life, but in the career. So before we sign off here, I'd love to hear some of your favorite moments of your career, if you're willing to share. Anything that has really, really stood out besides, of course, this amazing job that you just received at Hope College. Yeah. And any other exciting things coming up in your career that you're free to yeah. share with us? We would love to know what's up. So a funny story that, I mean, there are lots of ups and downs with the career and there's hilarious moments. And, but this one in particular, I think was is something that we can all relate to, um, especially because now we're in a pandemic, but um, I was working on a cruise ship or for a cruise ship company. And um, we rehearsed in Florida and then, you know, had our shows all learned and we flew to Europe to board the ship and the director of entertainment, so like the boss of bosses, was watching us rehearsing one of the shows. And he decided at that point that it was terrible material. He did not like it. And so he fired the choreographer on the spot. Whoa! <laughs> and thankfully, there was another choreographer on the ship that was doing the other show. And so he was like, hey, you, uh, you are going to be the new <laughs> oh, choreographer God. for this show. And so... <laughs> Um, we had, <laughs> so yeah. And like the show had costumes, we had music, the whole, it was ready to open. The show was ready to open. And then all of a sudden he was like, this is not happening. So we had about two to three days to create a new show <laughs> with this choreographer. So we kind of recycled some of the material and we had to use the same costumes. And so, I mean, it was just like a dancing and singing show. There wasn't a storyline or anything. And so... We had to revamp everything, almost everything, and learn about 75% of the show we had to learn new choreography for. Just kind of unlearning and then learning within three days was a little bit of a – it was just very, very challenging. So it was opening night, and there was this awful gastrointestinal illness that was going around the ship. Within hours – half of our cast was sick and quarantined oh in their God. cabin. 
Hmm. Yeah. And so the remaining cast members had to show up backstage and kind of figure things out again of, okay, how are we going to make this show work? Because they don't really cancel shows on cruise ships. They're like, well, if someone's sick or injured, just kind of restructure the show so the audience doesn't know that that person's missing. Mm-hmm. But this was half the cast was missing. Whew. So it was really um, quite the challenge. So there I was getting thrown into a duet that I had never done before. And so my my new partner and I were on the stage and he was teaching me this duet. It was this number where there were two duets happening. So like one partner would dance and then the lights would kind of dim a little bit on them. And then our lights would go up and we would dance. So it was kind of like these vignettes that was, you know, that were happening. Oh, cute. And so <laughs> it was 30 minutes to showtime. And I could hear the audience like trickle into the theater. And I was learning a dance to perform within, you know, the next half hour. <laughs> I couldn't remember it fast enough. I was like, I don't know this dance. Like, I just don't know it. And there were lifts and and partnering and all this stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know if I can do this, but I have to. There's no, there's no quitting. I, I, like, I'm gonna do it. And so what we ended up doing was, um, we went on for the number, and basically within like the parts where the lights dimmed, we would pick a pose and embrace. And the lights would dim and he would whisper to me. We'd make sure that our faces were turned away from the audience and he would whisper oh to me what was next. Oh, no So way. I would just be like doing a couple counts of eight, you know, dance, dance, dance. And then we pause and we freeze. <laughs> and he's like, okay, pas de bourree, pirouette, step, step, grand jeté, and then the bird lift. I'm like, okay, got it. And then, okay, go. And so <laughs> it was oh just, oh my gosh. It, it, it was awesome, but also the most stressful thing oh, yeah. I have ever done but somehow we made it work (laughs) yep show business that's show business that's show business um so that was kind of a fun moment in my career but I actually have a really cool opportunity coming up I'm directing and choreographing a show called Sanctuary and it takes place in a church and it just kind of showcases the architecture of the church and it's like it's this you know architectural collaboration between the pews and the dancers and it's quite peaceful. I think it. I've said it before and um, on a cast of dancers during the pandemic, and we had to cancel the show because of the lockdown. Mm. And so now I get to kind of have a second chance at relaunching it. And it'll be my, you know, big directorial debut yeah. in the city. And so I'm so excited. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So we're working for a month in June to make sure it's on its feet and good, worthy of an audience. And then July, we'll be having our opening night. So I'm really, really pumped. Wow. Anything else that you would like to pitch and say, I mean, you know, pitching your Instagram or any small businesses? My Instagram handle is Lindsay Hansen Collective. Um, That's my dance company, actually. I have kind of a loose collective in New York where a bunch of dancers will get together for projects. So Wonderful. Awesome. Yes. Go give her a follow. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Lindsay, thank you so much for your time today and and speaking with our listeners and this has just been such a treat i can't we seriously oh it's my it. pleasure and listeners follow us on instagram at dressing room talk pod you can find us on facebook at dressing room talk podcast give us an email with any suggestions you have our email is dressing room talk at gmail.com michaela check out our other episodes we are on 
13 platforms and we I think we just got on Pandora. If you're a Pandora fan, get on there and listen to us there. And we're also on Spotify, Apple, CastBox. I don't even know how many there are. There's so many. Um, but you can t- actually listen to our episodes on our website, which is puddledropmedia.com slash dressing room talk. And you can see our little pretty faces with our bios and our wonderful producer, which perfect time to add him in and give him a shout out shout out to jim lasher puddle drop media our editor producer king of thank god that we don't do all the editing because <laughs> it would be bad um <laughs> thank you for all you do and with that i'm Lindsay. i'm michaela and i'm grace and, and this, this is dressing room talk, talk.